but I just had to sit with it. I talk a lot about being emotionally uncomfortable. I had to sit with that feeling of how would I act? Like, what would my day look like if I didn't allow guilt to lead? What would my day look like if I created this relationship with my child where I could still focus on my needs, my wants, my desires, my vision, and honor their needs, their wants and desires, but I didn't have to sacrifice, you know, my basic human needs to to do both. Hi, I'm Sandy Fowler, and you're listening to Mighty Parenting, a podcast where we explore parenting in a way that helps us and our kids find more happiness and fosters emotional wellness, even while solving problems with our teens and young adults. We learn through advice and stories from experts and other parents, and I'm so glad you've joined us. So welcome to Mighty Parenting, where we have real, raw, and relevant talk about raising teens and parenting young adults in today's world. This episode is sponsored by Inward Bound Mindfulness Education, IBME. We hear people talking about mindfulness, but why would we want our kids to learn how to pay attention to the present moment with kindness and curiosity? Well, research has shown the benefits of mindfulness to include increased self-awareness, improved focus and impulse control, decreased stress and anxiety, skillful response to difficult emotions, and increased empathy. And research on the impact of IBME retreats shows teens experience increased self-compassion and life satisfaction, as well as decreased rumination and reactivity following their retreat. Basically, it's what we strive for at Mighty Parenting, emotional wellness and greater contentment for our kids. IBME has many programs and opportunities for our teens and young adults, and even parents, to learn and practice mindfulness. Just visit ibme.com slash mightyparenting to see what's available. And while you're there, be sure to enter your email to stay updated on new offerings. Our conversation today is with Heather Chauvin, and we are chatting with her about guilt. Guilt impacts us, and it impacts our parenting, and it impacts our kids. Not only that, when we live our lives through guilt, we're teaching our children to do the same thing. Heather learned about this after she was diagnosed with stage four cancer. Through her journey, she ditched the guilt, reshaped her life, and has come out thriving. She shares her journey and her wisdom in her book, Dying to Be a Good Mother, How I Dropped the Guilt and Took Control of My Life in Parenting. Heather, welcome to Mighty Parenting. Sandy, thank you so much. I'm excited for this conversation. I am too. And guilt is such, oh, it can feel just like, unbearable, unmovable weight oftentimes. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very excited to talk about this with you today. I'd love to hear a little about the role guilt played in your life before your diagnosis. Yes. I often find it like guilt itself is so misunderstood. And I think in the personal development industry, we talk a lot about fear and It's one of those feelings, emotions that can be all consuming, but it feels real, right? You know how they talk about false evidence appearing real, like fear, right? Mm -hmm. False evidence appearing real. And people are like, I know I'm scared, but I'll do it anyways. But guilt has like, to me anyways, it feels like it has this shame attached to it, right? Even though, so guilt is I'm doing something wrong. 
shame is I am wrong, but it can, it can kind of ride the line sometimes. And I think when you attach guilt to parenting at the core of all of it, it's kind of like, if I do this, I'm a bad parent. If I do this, I'm a bad mother or I'm a bad caregiver, which is kind of, you know, culturally we've defined women by our nurturing tendencies. So it's so intertwined and ingrained in our identity. And before my cancer diagnosis, so it was about eight, nine years ago, it was about eight years ago, I was diagnosed with a stage four cancer. And previous to that, I was doing everything that I thought was right. And I'm using air quotes like that I should be doing as a mother. Um, But I came into mothering with immense guilt. I, I came in thinking I was already doing something wrong. I was a teen mom. Um, I was single, I was on government assistance. And so I already carried around this story and this feeling of not being good enough, like not doing enough. And then so guilt and fear, the fear of failing kind of just kept pushing me along the way. So then I started over mothering and over parenting and like my identity and my existence and my purpose was for my children or for my son at the time. And it just kept carrying me and carrying me and carrying me. And I knew that I needed to create space for myself. And I did slowly, slowly, slowly. I, you know, dove into meditation and mindfulness and I had the mentors and I attended the retreats and I started my business, but subconsciously my fear and my guilt of Every time I would go sit at the computer and I'm about to get some work done, the guilt would take over and like suck me back into, I need to be a hundred percent present with my children at all times. Um, It was all consuming where now I can feel it. And I'm like, there you are, but you are not going to like sabotage how I want to feel. You're not going to sabotage this connection that I want and desire with my children. I love the way you talked about how guilt is now where you just like, I see you, you're Mm -hmm. here. It's almost like it's an, another entity for you. And you now have that space between guilt and yourself where you can make a choice and say, you're not going to sabotage me. Like you can be there and you can exist and I can still do what I know is best for me and my family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was really about taking off like that armor, right? Like that, that heavy coat of guilt. And then when I took it off, that's when vulnerability is there. It's like, okay, you're going to be, maybe you're just on my arm. Like I'll take off the coat, but I'll put it over my arm. So you can like come along with me for this walk. But that was, that felt vulnerable because then you still feel like, what if I actually am taking away from my children? What if, what if, what if, but I just had to sit with it. I talk a lot about being emotionally uncomfortable. I had to sit with that feeling of how would I act? Like, what would my day look like if I didn't allow guilt to lead? What would my day look like if I created this relationship with my child where I could still focus on my needs, my wants, my desires, my vision, and honor their needs, their wants and desires, but I didn't have to sacrifice, you know, my basic human needs to, to do both. If that makes sense. 
does. And in your book, you talk a lot about sacrifice and how that, how that harms us as mothers and also how that plays into guilt. Could you share with us a little bit about the relationship between guilt and sacrifice? Oh, yes. I, it's funny because I don't even identify, but like, you need to sacrifice. And I'm like, but what am I sacrificing? Like, I don't want to sacrifice my identity, my purpose, my existence as a human being on this earth, just because I decided to have children. Because what happens is when you are sacrificing too much of yourself, you become angry and resentful, you become fatigued, you become malnourished, and you die. Like some part of you physically dies, like physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And you get, you feel weak, you feel depleted, and you become angry and resentful. And then you're projecting that onto your family, like the ones that you're literally sacrificing everything for. And so it's different if it's like, okay, I have to sacrifice this hour so that I can, you know, write this, you know, go to the gym. Like people are like, oh, you got to sacrifice. And I'm like, what are you actually sacrificing? Like focus on the bigger picture. How do you want to feel in your life? How do you want to feel in your relationships and making sure that when you tell yourself you're sacrificing for the greater good of others, that in the future, you're not going to be angry, resentful, and depleted because if you are, that wasn't a sacrifice. That was like abandonment of self. Interesting. That wasn't sacrifice. That was abandonment of self. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I talk a lot about, um, this, this model that I created when I did my TEDx talk right before I, like before I did the book and there's this, this triangle and the bottom is uh, survival mode. And then it goes into momentum and then this thrival state and this creative abundance. And the thing is when my children need me or, you know, an area of my life is craving my attention, right? We've all the last few years, it's like, Things have happened and one area of our life is craving our attention. If my cup is full, if I'm living in a state of momentum or a state of thrival and an area of my life or a relationship is requiring more of me, I have more reserves to give. So I'm not living in survival mode and then I have to pay attention to that relationship and now I'm in a crisis state. So when my body, when I was neglecting my body, when I was, I wasn't sacrificing my body, I was neglecting and abandoning my body. Then all the symptoms, it was like, Hey, Heather, pay attention to me. So by the time I paid attention to it, it was in a crisis state and all of these other areas of my life that were needing my attention also required my attention, but I didn't have it to give. So the higher you are on the scale, the more fulfilled you are, you realize that If it's a short-term sacrifice because something needs your energy or attention, it doesn't become a lifestyle or a relationship habit. You're like, okay, we got to, we got to work on something here, but it's not about chronic abandonment equals good parenting. I actually have never heard someone use the word abandonment Mm. to talk about 
sacrifice. And, and in the world of, we're talking really about self-care of paying attention to, to ourself and what kind of care we need. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about this idea of how, maybe what it means when, when we're actually abandoning ourselves rather yeah. than, like you said, you know, just, well, sacrificing a little bit, I can sacrifice a little, what, what is this idea of actual abandonment of self? Hmm. So I, I'm such a visual person. So I like examples. So one of the habits that I've really been developing in the last few years to practically one, to feel better in my body, because when I feel better in my body, I feel better in my mind. And when I feel better in my mind, everyone benefits. Um, and in the last few years, really developing movement habits, but also nutrition habits. And if I'm listening to my body, like my body's saying, move, get up, go for a walk. You need nature. Like, you know what you crave when you're listening to it. But then a child comes in and they're like, hey, can I talk? And they're, they're having a hard time. But I had a walk planned, right? I was like, oh, I'm getting up. I'm putting my shoes on. I'm going outside. I may in that moment sacrifice my walk. I may say, you know what? Come with me. Let's go for a walk. So now I'm co-creating the experience with my child. But let's pretend that I don't go for the walk because that child really needs me. I'm still realizing that I need that walk. I'm not completely abandoning my need, want, or desire. But abandonment is when it's like 100%, I'm just going to cut off that desire, which is to go for a walk. And then you don't even return to it. You're just like, my needs don't matter. That's abandonment. My needs don't matter. My basic human needs don't matter to be seen, heard, understood. I have no value. I'm just going to keep, you know, living my life for everybody else. I'm going to continuously respond to emails, respond to text messages. Hey, I need you right now. It's 911. Meanwhile, you're about to do something that, um, you know, feeds your soul or it's a deadline that you have. And so then we abandon our boundaries and then we feel lost and confused and like, oh, nobody cares about me. When in reality, everyone cares about you, but you got to care about you more than other people do. Mm, I like that. I like that you need to care more about you than other people do. And part of it is we're teaching other people how to take care of us by the way that we respond to their requests. 100%. I find, um, I'm a huge fan. I don't know if you're familiar with Byron Katie. Oh, I love Byron Katie. She was one of my very first adventures into self-development. Oh my gosh. I love her to pieces. And I always make jokes about how this woman has literally created her whole career off of like four questions. Even just one. I mean, to this day, I just go, is it true? Yeah. Is it (laughs) true? And that gets everything going. Yeah. Who would you be without that thought? It's like, yeah, you're like, is it true? No, crap. Okay. Turn around. (laughs) Like, you're just like, ah, no, that's not true. And could you imagine just like your whole career is based off of literally one question? Is it true? Is it true? Is it true? And I don't even remember what the question was anymore, but I love what was it? I'm like, where did, where were we going with this? The Byron Kitty work? 
Oh, I had commented that we're training other people oh, how to yes. treat us by our responses to their requests. hundred percent. And so people are always like, I don't feel seen. I don't feel heard. And I'm like, are you seeing yourself? Are you hearing yourself? I don't feel respected by my children. I don't feel respected by my partner. I don't feel respected at work. And I'm like, are you actually respecting yourself? And typically when I ask people that and they're mirroring it back on themselves, first of all, not even the question of, is that, is that true that that person's not respecting you? When you mirror it back to yourself and go, well, I don't actually know what self-respect looks like. I don't know what seeing myself looks like. Then you start to realize, how am I supposed to expect a child, a teenager, a partner, a boss, a colleague to see me if I yet don't even see me? Or if somebody really does see you, if somebody really does hear you, but you're not seeing that in yourself. But when it comes to parenting, one of the number one things is how do I get my child to listen to me? How do I get my teenager to listen to me? I'm like, are you listening to yourself? Like, are you listening to what your body needs? Are you listening to what your life is, is craving? And if the answer is, I don't know how to do that, then how are you expecting a child to listen to you when you're not willing to listen to yourself? Oftentimes I used to, I tell people all the time, if you're yelling, why are you yelling? You're yelling because you want to be heard by the other person, right? Mm -hmm. But you aren't always hearing the other person. And so it's very intuitive. It's next level emotional intelligence, but this is where human connection lies. And it's a game changer when it comes to relationships. And I just want to take a short trip down this path is how does changing this type of thing impact our relationship with our child? Everything. I mean, my boys are 17, 12, and nine. And I, I was, my oldest was about, I mean, when I became a mother, that was my aha moment that things needed to change. And I just kept telling myself, not this, not this. Like, I never want my child to feel the way that I felt as a child. But he was about four or five when I really dove in to conscious parenting. And I was asking, I, I was seeking, like Sandy, I was reading the books. I was going to the doctors. I was going to therapy. And I'm like, I still don't get it. There's something missing. And it wasn't until I started taking ownership for how I wanted to feel and taking ownership for my own emotions, my anxiety, my anger, my resentment, my frustration, my overwhelm, my fatigue, all of it, I created more connection and compassion with my children. So I'll give you an example. Um, the oldest right now, 17, that's a really challenging age. The brain development, the identity that you're going through, like responsibilities. The last thing my child needs is for me to put more pressure on him. And I can still hold him accountable. I can still be respected. I can still be an authority, but I never yell. 
because there's mutual respect. Because the more I learned how to respect myself, the more he respected me. And he calls me out on it all the time, like all the time. You know, I remember as a teenager wanting to feel respected by adults, but adults didn't know how to respect me. One, because they didn't respect themselves. And two, there wasn't this co-creation equal, like you matter. So it's completely shifted how I communicate with my kids, how we handle behavior, how we be, we handle like empowering them um, instead of disciplining them. There's still natural consequences for their, for their actions, but I'm not here to shame my children and make them feel like they're bad people for being human. I think that's another place that guilt plays a huge role in families. And again, this has just come down through the generations is not only do we feel guilt and shame ourselves in our parenting and things, we also then use it to try to parent our kids, which isn't really parenting so much as manipulating, even though it's a word we don't really want to hear. I, I think that is what happens is we start we start doing this, you know, carrot and the stick, which is okay. Rewards and punishment rewards and shame that that's not really what we want with our kids. Like you were talking about, we want a good relationship. We want deep connection. We want to be teaching them to listen to themselves, to hear themselves, to see themselves, to respect themselves and to expect that others will do that as well, that others will respect them, see them, hear them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have to let go of, sorry, I cut you off. I was going to say, we have to let go of our illusion of our like fantasy of who our children are going to become. And the guilt, you know, guilt can be attached to expectation, expectation of ourselves, expectation of who our children need to be. I'm doing something wrong. And again, is that true? Is that true? And we make mistakes, right? We go to our default parenting strategies. And when we go to our default parenting strategies, we're like, ah, I did it again. But I always think if you were just one degree better, I feel like there's this misconception or perception out there that there is a right way to do anything. And when you don't do it that way, you're failing. And then you feel guilty and then you overreact and then you feel guilty for your guilt. And it's just, it piles on and you're like, wait a minute, we're all human having a different human experience. If we can learn to teach our children to understand who they are in the world rather than putting this pressure on them that they need to get a certain education or become a certain person to please us, we realize that what we're really doing is trying to live out who we wanted to be through our children. And if we actually live that out in our own lives, we get to co-create with our children. All we're trying to do is learn more about ourselves. And when we can do that, we become guides for our children instead of delegators. And added into that, you mentioned fear earlier. I think a lot of what we put into our, into these expectations for our kids is based on our fears. I have an expectation that they're going to have this job 
because I have a fear that they won't be financially stable, or I have a fear that they might get harmed if they have a different kind of job, or I have a fear that they won't have time to have a strong family life. We have these fears, they feed into the expectations, and then that story gets put on the kids, which creates issues between us and them, and then circles back around to us feeling guilty about what's happening, as well as, yes, the feeling guilty about the kids not meeting those expectations. Because if they don't live up to the expectation we had for them, then we must have done something wrong. Therefore, we are not a good parent. We are not a good person. And as you said, our, our identity, especially for mothers, is tied up in, in this parenting. And who are we if we're not a good parent? And if I was a stay-at-home mom, this was my job and I screwed it up. And if I'm a working mom, then I wasn't there. So my kids got screwed up. I mean, it's just such a tangled, tangled thought process that we go through. Mm -hmm. And I love that you bring us back to Byron Katie and just go, is that true? Yeah. Is it really true? So you were actually raising your kids as you made these discoveries and changes. I'm curious whether there is a little bit of a, like if you can look back and kind of go a before and after your major shift around guilt and how your parenting experience differs with and without that guilt. You know, how you see impacting your children differently when you have the guilt and when you don't, or I should say not when you don't have the guilt, but when you don't allow the guilt to run your life. Yeah. Um, I own my own guilt. So when it comes up, I know that it's mine and it's my responsibility instead of projecting that onto somebody else and expecting them to change their behavior. So when it comes up, I can, I'm very curious, right? I'm like, hmm, interesting. But I will also say that I have let go of the pressure that I know what is right for my child. I can advocate and take a stand for them and really encourage them and push them. Um, but I don't know what, you know, they're going to do as adults. And also this like internal story or belief that we're going to screw up our children. I've come to accept that I have screwed up my children in some capacity because we are all human and we all have parenting stuff. Um, it's actually funny. Well, not funny, but interesting because my oldest puts pressure on himself because he doesn't think he will ever, he looks up to me. So he looks up to me and he wants to make me proud. And because I've accomplished things in my life and I've overcome so much that, that puts a different pressure on him of like, not feeling less than, but like, oh my gosh, she's up here and I'm down here. And I'm like, hmm, it, it was the opposite for me and my parents where I was like, I don't want to become that. So I like did everything in my power. And so I'm like, you can never get this right. You're either 
not good enough or you're too much. So why don't I just take the pressure off and say, buddy, you're perfect just the way you are. And that's his life lesson. The point is every human has life lessons and it doesn't matter how much we try to manipulate their human experience. They have this spiritual journey that they have to go on as well. And guilt is, you know, when you just look at it for what it is and ask yourself, why am I doing this? You completely take the pressure off. So I've taken the pressure off. I've also become, I call it being unhooked. So we constantly have triggers, right? Someone will say something to you and it triggers. It like sparks something inside of you. I I watch how my children will say something that can spark guilt, but sometimes it doesn't. And I'm not emotionally attached anymore. And I'm like, I see that you're frustrated and I'm happy to talk about it. Let me know. Like you can tell they're really trying to get me to like do something and they can't guilt me into it. And they're like, dang dang it, what's going on here? So it's, it's interesting to watch even how our guilt and our fear, other people pick up on it, like our children, and then they manipulate their behavior based on our emotional reaction. So it's like, they know now that they can't do certain things because I've changed. So their behavior has changed too, if that makes sense. Well, we are so interconnected. Everything that we do impacts our kids and vice versa, as you said. And so, yes, as we change ourselves, that's going to change the dynamic. So here's the big question, Heather. I mean, this sounds wonderful, right? To not be, not be led around by your guilt to, I I know you said you still have guilt in your life, but it's a very different feeling. It, It it's a little bit of a, it sounds like it's more of a little bit of a creeping up and you notice rather than this sort of overwhelming and, you know, pressure, this heavy weight kind of a thing. So that sounds wonderful. I'm sure to anybody listening, what do you recommend that we do to take the next step on our own journey toward Mm. moving away from living through guilt? Where first I love a good brain dump. I love a good pen to paper and I'm a very practical person and write down all the things that you feel guilty about. Know that the reason why you feel guilty is because that's a growth opportunity. There's a story in there. Something happened along the way. And the reason why you feel guilty is most likely because of your childhood or something, you know, a story that you picked up along the way fear of judgment from other people, but everything that you feel guilty about is an opportunity for growth. And then you get to look at them and say, which one do I want to work on for the next 30 days? Like I feel guilty. Um, I used to feel guilty, you know, working out because I had this secret fear that if I worked out, um, I would feel so good. And then my husband would leave me like upper limiting, like there's just, it's so intertwined with us, like in our whatever. So I worked towards it and I would work out and stop trying to control my husband and telling him that he needs to work out too. Cause I wanted to bring him along with me. And he's like, you be you, I'll be me. I'll do my thing. You do your thing. And then I just, every day I'm like, is it true? Is that going to come true? And there was no evidence of that. And so it's, it's running towards your guilt, not running away from it. 
just observing like what areas of my life do I feel guilty, write them all down, circle one, and then make a conscious decision and literally create space for it and make it a habit and watch how you can kind of prove your guilt wrong. And then when you start to prove it wrong, you, it doesn't take so much, it doesn't have so much power over you. And then when it doesn't have so much power, it doesn't, it doesn't dictate your behavior because the next time you feel it, you're like, ah, I remember your tricks that you were trying to do on me last time. And you can kind of override that. I love that. And you pulled up a memory for me at one point in my life, I realized I was overeating and not, not cravings or anything. What happened was somewhere along the line, I'd come up with the story that if I wasn't, if I was eating, that was an acceptable time to not be racing around, running around, taking care of the house, the family, the kids, the whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I would sit at the table and I keep eating because what my body needed was rest and a break. And somewhere I picked created that story for myself that that was the acceptable way to do that. It was so interesting. And once I realized it, I could take it apart, deconstruct it. And, and how did you figure that out? I'm so curious. The kids I'd be sitting at the table having lunch and the kids would be coming up, mom, mom, we need this. We need this. I'm like, okay, mom's eating. You know, I'll talk to you when I'm done. And I just realized like, wow, this is happening a lot. And as you want, as soon as you create awareness, then you grow that awareness, right? So you go, oh, okay, this is happening. Wow. Well, this is happening a lot. Hmm. Thinking about this, noticing more, I'm really sitting at the table for a lot. Why does it take me so long to eat my lunch? And then you start going, okay, I sat down I ate was on my plate. Oh, wait, I'm getting more food, but am I still hungry? No, I'm not hungry. Then why am I getting food? And you just keep doing that and over a period of time. And I have no idea how long it actually took me to put all the pieces together, but you just keep being aware of what's going on and going similar to, is that true? My other question is just why? Yeah. Why, why am I taking so long to eat? Why am I eating if I'm not still hungry? Love that. I often ask myself and I, when I'm coaching people, I say, what's the feeling you're after? right? Mm -hmm. Like, what is the feeling? What are you craving right now? Or what are you getting from that? And yeah, what I'm hearing you say is that it was the feeling of rest. Like you were like, I'm sitting down, I'm taking a break. And then it's like, well, why can't we do that without attachment? Like, why do we have to be doing something else to take a break? I always ask women, why are you waiting to get sick in order to take a break? Like, Oh, I just, I just need a break. I, I hope I catch a cold or something. Oh, and I'm like, well, can you just not schedule a break? Like, so that you can actually go on vacation or enjoy your life rather than lying in bed all day. But we've all had those thoughts like, oh, when this happens, then I can give myself permission to take a break. Mm-hmm. Well, and that exact thought, I mean, again, many, 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 many years ago, I had that thought, oh, you know, I just need to catch the flu for a day. And then you catch the thought and you go, wait a minute, what, what are you thinking? Okay. Mm -hmm. Why again, why are you having this thought? What do you really want? Let's, let's just get some rest. Let's build some in here somehow. 
um, yeah, it's, it's interesting when we just start paying attention and then asking ourselves those, those questions, is this true? Why, what's the feeling you're after? And then having to honor, honor what our body, our mind, our spirit is asking of us. And, and I appreciate you taking the time today, Heather, to help wake us up to this because you showed us, you know, how much of a difference that makes in our parenting. Mm -hmm. And then I just want us to remember, as we've talked about here on Mighty Parenting many times, our kids are watching us. What we're modeling is what they are likely to live. So that's additional parenting really is learning to take care of yourself. So you are one taking care of yourself and a wonderful side benefit is you're teaching your kids to do it too. So Heather, for anyone who wants to learn more from you, where can we find you? Yes. Um, oh man, so much going on. So you can follow me on Instagram at Heather Chauvin. It's spelled C-H-A-U-V-I-N. Um, the podcast is, it used to be called Mom is in Control, but we just rebranded it to emotionally uncomfortable because um, we're we're getting emotionally uncomfortable and the book dying to be a good mother can be found online anywhere books are sold and we'll have links certainly we will have links to your website and the book and so we'll make sure that everyone can find you easily without having to stop what they're doing to write it down right now and Heather, thank you so much for showing us a path to live and to parent better happier and healthier Sandy, thank you so much. And Mighty Parents, thank you for being here, for being part of the Mighty Parenting community. And remember, if you're here, if you're listening, you are a Mighty Parent. You got this. And I will see you next week. Mighty Parents, thank you for joining me for this episode of the Mighty Parenting Podcast. If you're ready for more, visit MightyParenting.com where you can get your free email series, How to Talk to Your Teen, with tips for communicating with your teen in a way that builds connection and communication. You can also get Mighty Parenting Plus so you can access our private podcast, which includes all the Mighty Parenting episodes, behind the scenes, guest highlights, and more. And of course, remember to share the podcast with another parent to support them on their parenting journey.